Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another episode of the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Jean. I'm your host. I write a blog called Unpickled and uh, have been a co-host on Bubble Hour for several years now. And lately, um, while everyone else is kind of taking a break and seeing how things go for them, I have been here by myself doing some episodes. So here's, uh, I'm on my own here today without a guest. I had an interview lined up for this week and um, something came up, a family emergency and she couldn't make it. So I just thought, oh, no problem. We'll just go a week without. And I'd already taken the week off to move. And holy schmoly, you guys, I got a ton of emails saying, where are you? Is everything okay? And um, I guess we traumatized you all a little bit by sort of abruptly stopping episodes earlier this year. And um, just when I started making you feel like you were going to be getting them again all the time, I took a break. So so I thought I would pop on and um, use this episode to just read a few emails and answer some questions that have come in that kind of spark some interesting thoughts and discussion for me. And I also wanted to let you know that it is totally okay. If we go a week or two without episodes, that's okay. Cause really I think what, where we're at right now is, is that, you know, we don't have to broadcast weekly. I'm really shooting to get you at least one episode a week. Uh, but please know that if a week goes by without one, it's, only because I'm looking after other things. And um, some of you panic that if we're not podcasting, we're not sober. I promise you, everybody's good. We're all good. Um, sometimes when we're not broadcasting, it's because we're tending to our sobriety, um, tending to self-care. And, um, and that's important, too. And I know you understand that. So anyway, I just, um, I've got some really interesting stuff here, and I'm going to talk about some things that make me super uncomfortable. I've got butterflies in my stomach knowing that later on in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about my OCD. I've mentioned it on the show. I've mentioned it on the blog, and um, I always get a lot of questions, and I think it sort of deserves, uh, it seems to have come to the forefront for me lately, so it deserves maybe to be talked about again. Um, it's kind of gross. I hate talking about it, but I know it helps people. And even if you aren't a person that has this form of OCD that is very, very, very common among people with uh, addiction, you may find it interesting because it's quite likely to affect someone else that you know. Uh, but to start things off, I wanted to read you some of the feedback from our last episode, which was Karen's story. So Karen's story was uh, a gal that I met from Australia and um, on her podcast she spoke with just heart-wrenching honesty about uh, how difficult the transition from high-functioning you know overachiever 
was for her when she became a mother and suddenly, you know, couldn't control the perfection in her life. And that resonated with a lot of you. In fact, I would have to say uh, I probably got more feedback on that particular episode than we have in anything for quite a while. So I know that her story touched a lot of you. And I think, you know, overachieving um, is pretty common amongst women that develop this. I think it's one of the reasons why we drink is to kind of numb the same sort of self-doubt and anxiety that drives us to do too much and try too hard and be a people pleaser. Anyway, I want to read this letter from Marsha who says, this interview really spoke to me. I was a high achiever and suffered terribly from postpartum depression. And the only solution back then in 1973 was to be given downers. I could not sleep through my baby's needs, so I flushed them and turned to alcohol to self-medicate. I felt inadequate as a young mom, and everybody told me so. And now as time has gone forward and my daughter is 43, I still blame myself for poor parenting. She's successful, and we are feeling of inadequacy is etched in me. Now I'm 63 and just beginning sobriety. It's hard to forgive myself for so long ago. I'm beginning to see a therapist. It feels good. Thank you for keeping the bubble hour going. It's a great piece of my recovery pie. So... I hear a lot of good things in that, you know, I'm, I'm always happy when I hear people are taking the time to go see a therapist and really work on the inside. And my heart goes out to Marsha because it just goes to show like this can be a long, long, long process. And it isn't until we start to pick apart the hairball and realize, oh, it's not just my drinking or my drinking isn't a standalone issue. It goes back to a lot of other things that are all sort of intertwined and interrelated. Um, that's when, that's when we really start to see things happen in recovery. Uh, another letter came from Dee in Sydney, who um, actually I think has connected with Karen, and I think they're going to go for coffee. So it's really cool to me that this podcast is bringing people together in real life. Dee says, I had such a profound experience listening to your latest podcast, Karen's Story. I too live in Sydney. However, that is possibly one of the least significant parallels to her story. I was also a flute teacher while in school and university, and I grew up in a relatively stable home. I'm a high achiever with several university degrees and in a C-suite role at a large corporation. I suffered postnatal depression with my children, and Karen's story of controlled crying brought back many hard memories. I was a thumbsucker, like you too. Yes, I was a thumbsucker. And a smoker from a young age. I work full time and juggle this with raising two children, a boy 15 and a girl 13. My first child did not sleep and I developed depression. My second child did not breastfeed and I was devastated. There followed years of therapy and antidepressants while my drinking escalated. I've had many periods of sobriety over the years, some up to nine months. I would always fall back into it and it would immediately and would be immediately where I was at when I stopped. I managed to hide it from most people until the end when I was out of control. I got sober through AA. I had spent 25 years drinking and 10 years trying to stop using all the talked about methods. I hit my own bottom, finally shook off my aversion to AA and crawled into the rooms in Sydney, a broken woman last January. It has been a wonderful and life-giving experience of my life. Now I wanted to reach you Dee's story because it's so similar to Karen's, but Karen talked about you know, not connecting with a 12-step program and that she felt like that just didn't click for her. And I really wanted to read you Dee's story to show that someone with an almost identical story uh, did find um, did find a good connection in the rooms and did find that that was exactly what she needed. And I really wanted to show you sort of both sides of that. 
And on the topic of, uh, of uh, recovery programs, I also got a message from Lynn in Australia. She wrote on Facebook and said, I would have to respectfully disagree with Karen's perception that there are no positive recovery movements in Australia. It's my experience that it's very much alive and strong. There's a very strong women's network amongst AA members, many with 30 plus years of sobriety. Just about every other 12-step program found in any part of the world can be found in Australia. There are also many therapists who facilitate individual and group therapy programs in the area of addiction recovery. So wanted to balance that out. I know we had talked up on the show that just Karen just hadn't found a program that, that worked for her, that clicked with her, but many did and sort of left you with the feeling that Australia was, you know, a little bit of, um, uh, you know, a no man's land for recovery. And maybe, maybe it's just a little bit harder to find, um, it's there and it's growing and um, certainly had a lot of letters from people there. So I really appreciate that. I also wanted to share this with you. This came from Susan on our bubble hour.com. Uh, I related so much to Karen's story. It has now been eight months since I had my last alcohol like drink since I last had any alcohol. And when Karen said, I paraphrase, it's easier to avoid drinking altogether than to moderate. I shouted, hell yeah. Thank you, Karen, for sharing your story with us. And uh, one more on this topic. This is also on the Bubbler website. Uh, thank you, Karen, for sharing your story. It resonated with me so well, and it helps me realize I want that too. When alcohol takes away more than it gives, why keep it in our life? It is a lie to think we're losing something when making decisions not to drink. Thanks for helping remind me that there is no shame in not drinking. It's a better choice and a better way to live for many of us. I love the hopefulness of that letter, and I, I love that just by sharing our stories, we're showing that, that, yeah, this is a hell yes situation and, and that there's joy in recovery. There's like great things in life after alcohol. And I'm glad that what you're hearing here helps that resonate with you. Okay. On to other topics. Um, a really good one came in on the bubblehour.com. Uh, the comment said, there's a lot of talk about alcohol on your program, but little mention of drugs or substitute. What constitutes sobriety and recovery? So this is a really great question. And I remember many years ago when I was still drinking like a fish and, and assessing everyone else's problems, someone I knew had, um, I, I knew was going to a 12-step program and was saying she was sober. But I really had, in my experience, that person I was aware was doing a lot of drugs, but I didn't know or think or judge that she was drinking too much. And I really wanted to ask her, well, does that mean you've quit drugs too? Or does AA, sorry, I said the program, does a 12-step program just mean that you are quitting alcohol but not drugs? But I didn't have the courage to ask that question, but I always wondered that. What does it mean to be sober? Um, we, we focus primarily on alcohol addiction here on the bubble hour because that is pretty much our experience um, on this. And we, we actually talk about this, and this is a requirement of being on the air. Sobriety for us means using no mind-altering substances. So that means no drugs or alcohol. Some people in recovery programs take that so far as to say, like, you know, you can't use prescription medication. Well, if you're addicted to a prescription medication and using it, you know, not as prescribed or, um, you know, using it addictively, then, yeah, that's not sobriety, right? It's, um, but if you need um, medication, if you need antidepressants, if you need um, mood-changing drugs and are prescribed them by a doctor, in my book, you know, that's okay. So 
it's not an easy question. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it, it is different for everyone. On the bubble hour, when we talk about sobriety, we're talking about no drugs, no alcohol, uh, and no prescription drugs, you know, off-label. Um, but to some extent, sobriety can mean different things to different people. Uh, I do know someone who is, is very honest in saying that if she had tried to quit drugs and alcohol at the same time, she never could have done it. That the only reason she was able to to quit alcohol was because she continued uh, smoking pot and um, and then quit that afterwards. She doesn't count her sobriety date until she put them though. And I think that's an important thing. Um, the idea of quitting one substance at a time if you are addicted to more than one substance, that's called harm reduction. And harm reduction is also, I guess, harm reduction. I'm not an expert. So if I'm wrong, write me a letter and I'll read it next time. But harm reduction is like that would also include like maybe someone who um, is an addict who's using something like methadone to get them off. That might be considered harm reduction. Um, but basically, um, when we talk about sobriety, we're talking about no drugs, no alcohol. Um, what's recovery versus sobriety? Also a really good question. Uh, I think you can be sober without being in recovery because recovery, at least to me, and again, I think we, we can all take this for how we want, um, but recovery to me is about what happens after you get sober. So it's really, you get sober, you quit using, you quit drinking. Then you start recovery, which is where you go back and you try to figure out what the hell you were drinking so much for in the first place and try to change some of your core beliefs and behaviors and responses to the world that leads you to live your life in a way that you need to be constantly numb. So to me, that's what recovery is all about is, is backing up and going forward um, on Unpickled. I have a little video called Unre and, um, and from Unpickled Recovery, but the on is like back up and the re is go forward. So like undo some of your old ways and relearn some new ways. Uh, understand the way that you used to look at things and relearn how to do them better. Um, so that to me is recovery. And I believe that I, I do believe sobriety is for life. I, I just think we do better when we're free of drugs and alcohol. Um, and I, I think that being clear minded um, allows us to continue the process of recovery and to continue working on ourselves. Now, is it possible to be in recovery without being sober? I suppose there is. In fact, I, I do know some people that, you know, work very hard on their recovery and are working really hard to try to heal some of their own wounds, um, but they are continuing to drink. Um, but to me, recovery means both, you know, being being free of your addictions and then moving forward. Um, someone once said uh, on a comment on my blog, I wish you a slow and enlightened recovery. And it's one of my favorite expressions ever because it really, I was in a hurry to fix this problem. Like I really thought three months and I'm going to have this done. And here I am five years later and yeah, I haven't relapsed. I've, I've done great at staying sober. And uh, I, and I hope that it's always, you know, the case for me, but more importantly, wow, I am still working on, on picking apart and learning all those things. I just wanted to mention the language. Sometimes you hear me say, 
on the opening of the show, you know, hi, my name's Jean Recovery. I'm a person in successful long-term recovery. And for me, that means I haven't had a drink in over five years. That's kind of a new way of speaking about things. Um, and it, it sort of comes from the new recovery advocacy movement. And um, that way of speaking is to try to put it, put our recovery in, in language that's easier to understand for people that aren't inside the world of recovery. Because when Joe Schmo on the street who has zero interest in sobriety and recovery hears someone say, I'm an alcoholic, they don't know if that means you're still drinking, you're going to meetings and continuing to drink, you're in AA, but you aren't fixed yet. Um, you know, they don't really understand what that means. If you're with other people who are sober and you say, I'm an alcoholic, you know, we understand what that means because um, it is kind of a, almost a slang term in a way. It, does, it no longer describes, uh, you know, a medical condition because now they use different language for that. Um, so, so when we say I'm a person in recovery, um, it puts the person first, which is kind of the new way that we, we um, mindfully speak about anyone with any condition. Um, and and it, it puts a positive spin on it. Like it focuses on the fact that like I haven't had a drink in this long. The downside of that language training to me is that it doesn't give me a chance. Like I always almost feel like by omission if I say I'm a person in recovery. And for me, that means I haven't had a drink in five years. I always want to throw on the tagline and I never really did drugs. <laughs> I don't do drugs either, but I wasn't addicted to drugs, so I don't say that. But should I say that? Like, I want that to be clear. So anyway, that's just one of those things that I always struggle with. I'm curious about your perspective on how you present for yourself, um, how you talk about it to your friends and family. Do you speak differently about it to people in recovery versus people outside of recovery? So give that some thought. Shoot me an email at thebubblehour at gmail.com and let me know what you think about that and, and how you feel about it. Um, I have to say the first time I said the words like referring to myself as an alcoholic, and I'm not big on labels. I don't really like to use that label except with other people in recovery who kind of like get the bigger picture of what it means. But I do remember one time my husband like handed me, I can't remember either something to carry and it was, or we were somewhere and he made me like hold his drink while he like had to tie his shoe or something. And and uh, and I remember saying, oh, sure, get the alcoholic to do this. And we both just burst out laughing. And it was like the first time that I ever used that term for myself. But it was also the first time that I could laugh about it. And um, I don't know, maybe you find that horrifying. But to me, it was it was really empowering in the same way that it always feels great the first time you talk to someone else. Um, the, it, it was really freeing and empowering for me. So anyway. Short question, long answer. That's what we mean by sobriety and recovery on the show. If all I did for you was dig up more questions, um, again, write to me. We'll try and figure it out. Um, okay, here's the part that I didn't want to get to, but I'm going to talk about this. Um, I, get, I talked on the Bobble Hour, and I'm not positive which episode it was. I believe it was on... Um, other an anxiety, a, a, a show about anxiety or a show about um, comorbidities, other, other um, mental health issues. I mentioned that I have struggled for most of my life with a form of OCD called dermatilo, dermatillomania, um, which is a great big 
nonsense words that basically means skin picking disorder. Um, the, the language used for it now is excoriation disorder. So there's a lot of um, different names for it. And um, I was swamped by a tidal wave of feedback when I talked briefly about that on both my blog and uh, on this show. Um, and there's a reason for that, and it's because uh, this particular disorder really affects a lot of people that uh, also struggle with addiction. And it's kind of an understudied um, disorder that is becoming better understood. Anyway, I'm, before I get into talking about it, I just want to read you some of what other readers wrote to me about it, listeners wrote. Um, When you wrote about dermatillomania, I actually gasped because I do that. I didn't even know it had a name, and I didn't think anyone else did it, was what one person wrote. And I, that so resonates with me because I was really good at pretending that something that I, that I uh, if I didn't like something I did, I just pretended it didn't happen. And I'm going to talk more about that later on another topic, but dermatillomania was one of them. Um, I had this behavior. I thought it was disgusting. I thought I would be utterly rejected if anyone knew about it. So there's no way in hell I was ever going to talk about it. And, um, you know, I just opened a huge box of pain for people by talking about this. Another person wrote to me and said, uh, I pick the shit out of my back and my face under my chin. Dermatillomania. When I read this, I thought, oh, my God, I'm not alone. And, oh, my God, it's an addiction. I can't even wear certain clothes because of the scars and open sores I have. It's embarrassing, but that's the least of my problems. I want to cut the chains and not be a prisoner anymore to drinking. Uh, the switch turns off, and I have to get the last drop. The same way with any beverage. I'm sick, and I'm so ashamed. So just the pain, right? The pain of addiction and wrapped up with it, the pain of struggling with this disorder. Uh, another person said, just a note to say thank you for giving my most irritating and destructive habit next to drinking alcohol, that is, a name. I thought I was just a fidget who couldn't stop scratching and picking, but now I know it's an actual condition, and just knowing that helps a little. I'm convinced that part of the skin problem is due to anxiety caused by alcohol, and it's interesting when researching the condition also says it can be related to liver problems. I've got a doctor's appointment tomorrow, so I'm going to ask that they refer me to CBT counseling. That's cognitive behavioral therapy counseling. And hopefully life gets much more relaxing and far less hazy from here on in. Please tell us more about dermatillomania. So, all right, you guys, there's a lot out there. Um, as I said, some of you might be listening to this and thinking, oh, God, what does this have to do with recovery? But the stats are huge. The comorbidity of people that have this and also are in recovery is like just under 50% for women. Um, that's, that's huge. And I do think, it, in my opinion, and I'm not a medical expert, it, my opinion as a person that has this disorder, I believe for me it's anxiety related and I believe my drinking was anxiety related, um, that I tried to self-medicate anxiety, which I refused to believe I had. I had stress, not anxiety, but um, I drank to self-medicate that. Um, and as I now learn about this disorder, this um, skin picking disorder, um, I also know that it is uh, a, sort of another misguided attempt to self-soothe. 
So I'm just going to tell you a little bit of what's out there on it. Um, if you want to search this for yourself, if you notice one of your kids is doing this, or if it's something that resonates with you, I encourage you to just start searching. There is tons of information on the internet. There is there are support groups in, uh, in I think, many jurisdictions, at least online ones. Um, but here's what you want to look for. Look for the words excoriation disorder, E-X-C-O-R-I-A-T-I-O-N disorder. Um, it's also sometimes called SPD, skin picking disorder, or the great big word dermatillomania. So that's been its official name. However, um, in the uh, DSM-5, it's got its own condition called um, excoriation or skin picking in brackets disorder. It's under obsessive compulsive and related disorders. There's some disagreement as to whether it really is OCD because it doesn't act like um, entirely like OCD. Um, but let me just share it with you some of the varying things that I've read about it. So OCD, they're similar because they both have repetitive engagement in behaviors with diminished control and also generally are there to decrease anxiety. See, anxiety. Um, but here's what's interesting, you guys, and this is just on Wikipedia. I mean, this isn't, you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm a Googler. Um, but on Wikipedia states some studies that are starting to think that maybe excoriation disorder is more akin to substance abuse disorder than it is to OCD because the reasons it's different than OCD is because it affects more females than males um, and excoriation disorder is inherently pleasurable where OCD is not. I know that sounds weird, but if you have this, you'll know what I'm talking about. And that treatments that are generally effective for patients with OCD, which include um, SSRIs or antidepressants, are not as successful for people with excoriation disorder. Uh, and unlike OCD, the skin picking is rarely driven by obsessive thoughts. Instead, it's more of like a soothing action. So the following similarities exist between people with dermatillomania and addiction. First of all, there's a compulsion to engage in negative behavior despite the knowledge of harm. Second of all, a lack of control over the problematic behavior. Third is a strong urge to engage in the behavior prior to doing it. And four, a feeling of pleasure while engaging in the behavior and a feeling of relief relief or in reduced anxiety afterwards. So this really is a self-soothing thing. And um, standing the disorder as a maybe possibly more so addiction than um, straight up OCD gives more ways of treating it. And, um, and that may you know, give some hope for people with this disorder to have a little bit more success in treatment. Um, other things I found, episodes of skin picking are often preceded by accompanied tension, anxiety, or stress. So for me, I just want to say for me what this means is that my fingers will, when I'm not paying attention, they'll creep up behind my ear, and I will just gently scratch, scratch, scratch at, the, at um, my scalp, kind of up behind my ear. It horrifies me to tell you about this. I hate this behavior. Um, I'm not talking about just a little itchy patch of dandruff. I'm talking about actually like digging at it until um, until it actually will cause my scalp to bleed. Like I'm, I actually like 
that scratch so hard that I create sores. And somehow or other, doing that just is a release. It's almost like self-harm. Um, the connection between self-harm has caused some people to classify it as um, repressed rage and that think that it has more to do with like anger and repressed rage. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. I think I am a person that's not very good at expressing my anger, and I do direct it at myself, but um, I just want you to know what it looks like for me. That's, that is what it looks like for me. For other people, it can be um, if they have sores on their face, but a lot of people will try and find a hidden area, like maybe their toes or their fingernails um, or like the back of an arm, and then they'll always keep that covered, or most people have a spot that they focus on. Um, and so I'm not just talking about like just like digging, digging, digging and clawing in the way someone that's like um, uh, someone that's a drug user, like um, as I understand it, like someone that uses crystal meth will start to feel like they have bugs crawling on them and they'll like scratch at themselves uncontrollably and create sores. This isn't that. Um, this is usually really discreet, really private, really shameful, causes soothes anxiety, but it also creates anxiety. Uh, afterwards because of all the shame and embarrassment and you know just most people don't want to talk about it and I honest to God want to barf telling you about it right now but I'm going to pretend no one's listening to this I'm going to pretend you all just stop listening except for the one person who needs to hear this and to you uh, you're the reason I'm going to keep going even though I'm kind of shaking right now um, Furthermore, excoriation disorder can cause feelings of intense helplessness, guilt, shame, and embarrassment. And this greatly increases the risk of self-harm. For some people who really, really um, struggle with this, it can even cause suicidal ideation. Um, what causes it? Well, there's, as I said, there's different reasons, uh, different hypotheses as to why, but typically it's seen as a coping me mechanism to deal with elevated levels of turmoil, arousal, or stress within the individual, and that the individual has an impaired stress response. That's for sure me. Um, as I said earlier, some psychologists believe that picking behavior can be the result of repressed rage felt towards authoritarian parents. A similar theory holds that overbearing parents can cause the behavior to develop in their children. Um, but still some other studies show that uh, excreation um, included with another diagnosed condition, so people that have both OCD and excoriation disorder um, might pick because they're trying to like perfect their body or if they have um, body dysmorphic disorder. Um, sorry, OCD people will pick to try to get contaminants off their skin. Body dysmorphic disorder people might um, pick or scratch themselves to try to fix perceived imperfections. But I really have a strong feeling that a lot of listeners to this show will resonate with the idea that it is a stress response, that it's an addictive behavior because it's a self-soothing behavior and that it does cause a lot of shame. Um, there are some studies of neurology showing um, that um, it could be the result of a dysfunction in the dopamine reward function, which we know can also be related to addiction. Um, and some studies have shown naltrexone has shown a benefit in reducing picking behavior. I think we have some listeners that use naltrexone. So if you do, and if you have this disorder, and if you've seen any correlation, please write to me and let me know.
Okay, I want to go a little bit more on this. Um, so this one is from a website called ocdla.com, and it notes sort of think of it in terms of ABC. So there's three types of sort of skin things. So an A is like a normal thing anyone would pick, like a mosquito bite, um, or if you have like a piece of dry skin hanging off your arm that you just want to like remove, that's kind of a normal thing to pick at. But a person with dermatillomania will pick at B and C. And a B is like um, a neuro neurotypical person wouldn't pick at. Um, they will find it and, and kind of go after it and cause it to become a bigger problem. And C stands for creating. So some people with dermatillomania, myself included, will actually create wounds because of, so will, like, I will like rub, as I said, it's this little patch on my scalp that will have nothing wrong with it. But once I start scratching it, uh, it quickly develops something. So um, this website, um, OCDLA.com uh, is really promoting cognitive behavioral therapy as the best treatment for dermatillomania. They're of the belief that um, SSRI antidepressants uh, aren't as effective. Um, and they're big, big promoters of CBT, um, specifically habit reversal training and mindfulness-based training. So habit reversal training is something that I have done without even realizing it. And that is, as I've told you, the way I deal with this is that I keep my nails um, done with like tips on them and um, that gel stuff that makes them super thick. For me, that dulls my nails and I can no longer harm myself. But what happens is that every once in a while, as you probably know, if you ever have these nails, you have to take them off every once in a while, while and let your own nails kind of grow out and get healthy. And when, as soon as that happens, I'm right back at it. So right now I've had to have my nails off for a few weeks, my fake nails, and I'm kind of trying to get mine healthy again so that I can go get them and I'm just counting the days until I can get them done because I again and say like they go right back to where they were before no matter how long of a break it's been for me I just it's shocking to me how strong that urge is as soon as I have the ability to do it so so a habit blocker is one thing you can do um uh, easier for women than men if uh, putting the fake nails on. Um, but the other thing they suggest is keeping a log, keeping a little diary to help you understand when and why and what the pattern is. And then mindfulness-based training, which we all love mindfulness in recovery, um, that is um, the central thesis of it is that our emotional distress is a function of overreacting to unpleasant and unwanted feeling states that are normal, uh, part of the human experience. And so the goal of mindfulness based cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy is to learn to accept and tolerate normal feeling states despite the fact that they are unpleasant. And so one thing they try to get you to do um, with mindfulness training is just stop yourself and um, when you're about to scratch and say like, okay, I can scratch this in 24 hours. If it's still here in 24 hours, I'll be allowed to scratch on it. And then to, to write about what you're feeling and stuff. And so the idea is to sort of have delayed gratification. So it doesn't require you to stop scratching. It requires you to practice just not scratching for a while. And um, it says the more you practice doing this, the better you will become over time at resisting the urge to pick. And then you extend the hours. So you say like, okay, then make it 36 hours or 48 hours. Um, for most individuals with dermatillomania, skin picking is a self-soothing technique that helps them to better modulate their feelings. The second factor to work with in reducing the urges to pick, and you can do this concurrently with your wait time, is to identify the feelings you've been getting out through skin picking. What is the metaphor for your skin picking? 
Um, finally, um, I just want to say that this falls into the category of an acronym called BFRB, which stands for Body Focused Repetitive Behaviors. And so even if this topic of skin picking doesn't resonate with you, and if it doesn't and you're still listening, God bless you. Um, even if that doesn't resonate for you, maybe other things will. Hair pulling, um, excessive chewing of your fingernails or the skin around your fingernails, picking at your feet, uh, picking your eyelashes, your eyebrows, your pubic hair, um, picking at these things. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other compulsions as well, and you can you can find those online. Um, that information comes from CanadianBFRB.org. So if you look up, okay, if you look up, um, if you look up, oh my gosh, this is hilarious when I started searching this. So if you go and search um, B, oh sorry, RBFB which is repetitive body-focused behaviors, or sometimes it's called BFRB, body-focused repetitive behaviors. Okay, what you'll get, courtesy of Urban Dictionary, is RBF stands for resting bitch face. And uh, yeah, I have that problem too. I thought that was quite hilarious that that came up when I was looking for information on um, body-focused repetitive behaviors. Um, but take the time to go and search this. Um, even if you feel like it to you, here's my experience. Sometimes we tend to put things in a box. And I really believed when I got sober that I was pretty much perfect in all aspects of my life except for the drinking. And if I could just fix the drinking, then I would have kind of fixed everything. The truth of the matter was that um, the drinking was one symptom and that I had a lot of other symptoms that I refused to acknowledge as real. Um, the skin picking was one of them. I knew it was problematic. I hated it. I knew I did it in private. I knew I was ashamed of it. But I valued myself so little that it didn't matter. To, it didn't seem real to me as long as no one else knew about it. And I think the same was true with the fact that I struggled for several years um, with binging and purging. Again, I would never call myself a bulimic because nobody else knew about it, so it wasn't real. And, I, and as I was thinking, you know, for me, recovery, and let's go back and talk about sobriety versus recovery, I got sober first. And recovery for me was sort of opening up all these little boxes, that all these secrets that I hid so deep within myself and, and saying this does matter because it, even if nobody else knows about it, it still matters. It still matters that I know about it because I matter. And... Um, that five years of sobriety, that still brings me to tears. Um, I guess what I'm working on now is learning to, to care about what I think. Um, holy, wow. Well, this was an interesting episode. Here I am all by myself, sitting in my office, chatting away for 40 minutes and crying, and good God, what a good interviewer I am. <laughs> um, I want to move on to the last question, and I only saved this for last because it kind of works with closing the show. Um, the last question that people have written about is about our opening song, I Own It. And uh, if you're not aware of this, that is me singing. Um, in my previous life, so in 2007 and 2008, uh, I released two albums of um, 
uh, of original songs that I wrote and recorded. Um, in addition, like the, it, this was all part of my like fury of overachieving and everything. So in addition to being a mom of three kids and to working my butt off and to, you know, volunteering in the community, I couldn't just like play my guitar for fun. No, I had to like write my own music and produce my own songs and, and create, record albums and perform and do shows and go to folk festivals and, and, um, and get on the radio. And, you know, I did all of that. And I'm going to tell you what, I hated every minute of it. But I am really grateful for the songs that I have because of it, because I can really look back on them now and understand where I was at. Um, so, yeah, here's the, here's the question someone wrote in. Is that really you singing the intro song? I can't make out the words. I'm not looking for what? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that really is me. So the song is called I Own It. It is on iTunes. Uh, the album is called Blessings and Burdens. And um, I just want to tell you a little bit about that song before I play the whole thing for you to close the show. So I wrote it in 2008, and here's the story behind it. The lyrics are this. I own it. I did that. I'm not proud, but that was me. When I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Now, I was drinking when I wrote this. I mean, not literally drinking as I wrote the song, but I mean, I was in the midst of a lot of pain. And um, it's 2008, so, you know, my, my addiction was full-blown. I was drinking every day. I was trying to quit on a regular basis and not able to. Um, but this song is not about addiction or recovery. This song is about something else. So here's the story behind it. Um, I was at a hockey game with my family because I'm Canadian and we do that. And I, I leaned forward to talk to my husband and down at the end of the row, a guy leaned forward and looked at me and I realized it was a guy who in grade eight was Mr. Popular grade eight, 13 years old, one of my first experiences going to a party. And guess what I did, little miss alcoholic in training? I drank alcohol straight and got stupid drunk. And Mr. Popular um, quietly invited me into the bathroom. And um, uh, we made out for probably three minutes and um, told him to stop and got out of there. But during that time, um, you know, by today's standards, nothing much happened. But certainly by my standards, uh, I did something I was really ashamed of. Or, you know, I, I allowed him to, to, um, to, I don't know, just go further than I really would have wanted to had I not been drunk. And uh, I never told anyone about that. He left the room. A few minutes later, I went back to the party. And I never told a soul. And I was so ashamed. And I, I did what I always did. I pretended it never happened. But the problem is that, you know, I live in a pretty small town. And, um, of course, the guy knew that it happened. And so I would keep running into him. And, you know, 30 years later, here I was still seeing him. But the creepy part is that when I leaned forward to talk to my husband and instead, like, ended up leaning forward at the same time as this other guy did and our eyes met, uh, not in a romantic way, down this row of people he gave me this look that was just like a knowing look that he knew all my secrets I felt and I was so sick to my stomach because I'd spent all these years trying to pretend that that never happened and and it was still it would take me like just every time I saw him I would go from being a strong successful woman mom 
wife, business owner, like highly competent person, I would turn immediately back into that 13-year-old and my shoulders would start to round and I would look away and I would just feel so ashamed. And I realized at that moment that it was my denial that had power over me. And so I, I this song about taking ownership of the things that we pretend don't happen. Um, it's just going back to what I said about you know, having OCD or whatever the hell it is, having a picking disorder, um, is that um, just own it. Just like be honest. Stop pretending it isn't real and know that it's okay to, to own it. And that, yeah, we do take back a little dignity um, and just standing up and, and taking back our power and then moving forward with it. So... You can tell from the emotion in my voice that um, even though I wrote the song a long time ago, it still means a lot to me, and I still have a long way to go um, in, in owning it. Um, and I guess, wow, I'm tying everything together here, but recovery is a long, long, long process. And I believe I can't heal if I'm not sober. Uh, I can't heal if I'm numbing. And, um, and so I guess this is why I stay sober, so that I can keep getting better and so that I can keep learning and growing and um i'm really glad you're along for the journey with me i'm glad we're doing this together um because everything is better together you know um the me too is really powerful um and so i hope that um i hope that what i've said here today is helpful to somebody um thousands and thousands of people listen to this show oh my dear god um Surely to God, there's one person that this is going to help. And, uh, and if that's you, you're in my heart right at this moment. And um, just whatever, whatever your secrets are, whatever your pain is, know that if you know it, that's enough. Own it. Face it. Just because no one else knows doesn't mean it's not real. It's carrying around those boxes of secrets that make us sick. You know, that kind of those annoying cliches are we're only as sick as our secrets. There's, there's truth to that. There's a reason that's a cliche. There's a reason that's a thing. Um, so, yeah, recovery is really unpacking our shit. And, oh, I'm not supposed to swear on the bubble hour. It really is unpacking our stuff and finding the courage to look at it and just say, I own it. I did that. Uh, I don't like it. I don't like that I did it, but you know what? I have to own it. And, um, and it loses its power over you when that happens. So with that in mind, um, I'm going to leave you now. I'm going to um, play I Own It in full. Um, I hope you like it. I, I really do. I hope it touches your soul now that you know the story behind it. So i got lots of shows coming up in the weeks to come. Uh, so until until next time, please take good care, and um, and thanks for listening. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free.
just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see the point, I did that, and I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Just want to be free from the power. Oh, you say. 